0: All right, i got a phrase, I want to know if you've heard this, created by Warren Robinette. Have you heard this phrase? Now, if you are an avid gamer, or maybe if you saw the 2018 movie Ready Player One by Steven Spielberg, who directed it, you you might be familiar with that phrase. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, the world was on the cusp of a new home entertainment technology known as the video game. Now, I can still remember when I was a, you know, six, seven-year-old boy and I got my very first Nintendo Entertainment System for Christmas. Now, probably, you know, second to the day I married my wife or the day that my kids were born or or maybe the day I decided to follow Jesus, this was a pretty (laughs) significant day. Now, I, I can think back and really some of my greatest childhood memories were forged with groups of friends surrounding this gleaming television set battling it out in Mario Kart, or trying to save Princess Toadstool from the evil Bowser, or trying to collect the pieces of the Triforce to save the kingdom of Hyrule. And I loved, loved, loved those, those times. Now, uh, before the groundbreaking release of the Nintendo Entertainment sy- System, there was another console that wasn't maybe as popular, but maybe some of you had it, called the Atari. Did anyone have the Atari. Okay. Yes, yes. <clears throat> so really simple. I mean, you had the joystick and then the one button. That was that was it. So so back in the you know, late 70s, early 80s, in the early days of the video game industry, the heroes of this technology, the computer programmers, the game designers, they didn't get a lot of credit for their creations. In fact, the higher-ups at these organizations and corporations like Atari did their best to... Uh, Really not. they didn't want to share the royalties of the games that were released with any of these individuals. And so so they did their best to kind of just suppress their, their, their notoriety. And they paid them meager wages, and they'd often remind them that their job was easily replaceable. So one day, one guy by the name of Warren Robinette decided to do something about this. He was a computer programmer. Now, he didn't call for a strike. He didn't call for a walkout. In fact, he didn't even actively confront the higher ups at his company. Instead, he decided to seek out credit in a more subtle fashion, in a way that only a clever and nerdy computer programmer could. Using his unique skills, he decided that he would find a way to give himself credit by embedding his name into one of the games that he was creating. Now, this game was called Adventure, and you could play it on the Atari. Now, he he thought to himself, like, it couldn't be so obvious that whenever those who tested the game mechanics before they would release it to the rest of the world would find it, and and of course, make them take it out. But it couldn't be so obscure that nobody would ever find it, because that would defeat the purpose. And so, this is what led to the secret, uh, to the creation of this secret room in this game, Adventure. And sure enough, the game gets released, and before long, Atari received a letter from a 15-year-old boy saying that he had found this this secret room. I think we have a picture. This is it right here. If you can kind of see it says there, if anyone who found the secret room, for those who were very keen on exploring every nook and cranny of the game, they would find this. It says, created by Warren Robinett." And in this room, you would see these words, and this is the image that is created as being the very first Easter egg in the sense that we use that phrase today to describe any of those hidden items or hidden messages or hidden throwbacks that we love to see in our favorite movies, our favorite TV shows, or even in video games that we might play, often placed there just for the simple enjoyment of the fans who love them. Now, starting today, we're going to begin a new series called Easter Eggs because just like these little clues and hints that we sometimes notice in our favorite movies, we can find a long list of small clues and hints throughout the entire Old Testament that point to the person and the work, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, long before Warren Robinette wanted to bring himself some attention, in the game that he produced, we see from the very first pages of Scripture that God wanted all of humanity to not miss the coming of his Son. He wanted us to know years before his birth that a Savior was coming, that the destruction that was caused by our sinful desires was not the end of our story. And when we look back, on the narratives of creation, uh, the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, the laws of Moses, the Psalms of David, the wisdom of Solomon, the prophecies of Isaiah. We see these little breadcrumbs sprinkled throughout the stories that point to the ultimate culmination of Jesus in the New Testament. And as we head into the Easter season... We wanted to take some time to look back at some of these more important Easter eggs and unpack them as we get ready for Easter. And we'll unpack them in, in the most uh, double entendre sense of that phrase because they very, are, very literally are pointing to the Easter story. And as we'll see today, God wastes no time in pointing out what is to come in this future hope but does so in the very first moment that he has the, the ability to do so. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn over to Genesis chapter 3 today. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is known for being the very first chapter where we get a small glimpse of this hope that is to come. It's so subtle that it's, it's easy to miss in the context of where we find it, is so important as well because we can never fully know the importance of the gospel until we know why it came to be in the first place. And Genesis 3 tells us the reason why. Now, this is a very, very weighty chapter for us to dive into today. In fact, you can say, that that we are meeting here today, when we meet here every single Sunday, that that we join together with our life groups or maybe go and join different Bible studies, all because of what we're going to find here in Genesis chapter 3. This passage, it is our history. It is where we first learn about our greatest problem and our primary threat in our lives. As Christians, we believe it is the history of all mankind. It's the history that explains all the tensions and all the frustrations that we face the deepest pains that we encounter in our lives and that we see in the world around us. And in those moments of difficulty, it is this chapter that sheds some light on why we face these difficulties and explains so many questions that with those, those without a knowledge of God simply cannot explain. And it's deeply tragic. The why questions that we often, often ask ourselves when we see difficult things, when we see marriages fall apart, or when we see children abandoned, or when we see citizens become refugees, or when we see that food is scarce, or when the sanctity of life is rejected, or when truth is not only openly abandoned, but it is no longer even recognized, when we see courage and strength cannot be found, when greed leads the way, when selfishness becomes the primary filter for the decisions that are made, when anxiety greets you each morning, And kisses you goodnight every night. It all begins right here in Genesis chapter 3. This chapter gives us the account of the fall of mankind, the separation from God. The separation of creation from Creator. And other than perhaps the the crucifixion narrative in the Gospels, this is probably one of the most catastrophic and heartbreaking narratives that we find in Scripture. It takes an additional 1,186 chapters to solve the problem that we see just by chapter 3. And unfortunately, it's a story that we can never fully grasp the emotion of because we never really know the full extent to which we fell because we have always been living in this time and in these consequences of the chaos that began in chapter 3. Our lives are kind of like this pile of Legos on the floor or a pile of scattered puzzle pieces, and all we have is this small picture on a box to tell us what once was or what is possible or what could potentially be someday. We live in the aftermath of this great storm that has blown through, upending all sense of order and structure and peace that was created in chapters 1 and 2, but now has left us living in a state, state of chaos. So what happened? Well, before we jump in, we have to catch ourselves up, get up to speed. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God has created the world. He has brought order out of chaos. And if you remember, I mean, he begins by, by creating all the settings. He creates the skies above, the heavens, the earth, the, the waters below, and the land. And then he begins to fill each of those settings with, with good things. He fills the skies with the stars and the sun and the moon. And then the birds of the air, the sea creatures in the sea. And he fills the earth with beautiful vegetation with, with flowers and with trees and with all the, all the different animals and, and wild beasts of the earth. And then at the very end of his creation on, on day six, he saves the very best for last and he, he creates humankind, the only creatures that are made in his own image. And, and every time he stops, and he says, this is good. This is good. And he continues and he creates Adam from the dust of the earth. And, Given that man was a unique creation, created in the very image of God, God created humans with the ability to choose right from wrong. No other beings possess this gift. And it's a gift because it allows us to demonstrate a response of obedience, which is God's very love language. But the ability to show obedience necessitates a choice. One cannot obey without the option to disobey. And there in the center of the garden was this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, even though God had given Adam and Eve free range to eat from anything, any tree that they find, and he provided them what they needed, there was just this one tree that he said, Do not eat of this tree or you will surely die. And the placement of this tree meant the first opportunity, the only opportunity at this point for a choice between right and wrong, between obedience and disobedience. A choice whose boundaries were set into place by the existence and word of an objective, objective moral authority in God himself, a being who in him is all good and whom there is no falsehood and no evil, which makes him the perfect standard for what is right and what is wrong. Of course, these chapters finish. uh, You know, God brings Eve into the picture, and the two just together live out in this wonderful, intimate relationship with God. And then we get to chapter 3. So let's begin, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, I want to stop right there because I really want to break down what we're going to see happening with this exchange between the serpent and with Eve. Now, up to this point, we don't know anything about this serpent. In fact, it's going to be many, many, many chapters later that we even learn who this serpent is, and we learn his name is Satan. Now, Satan and the serpent, they are one and the same. In fact, this this is the very enemy of God, the adversary of the Creator. And he seeks to change our allegiance. He seeks to uh, allow our obedience to move away from God and toward other things, the obedience that God so deserves. And this text makes it clear to let us know that, that this serpent is crafty. And maybe in your Bibles it says a word like cunning or perhaps shrewd. In other other words, this serpent has something that he wants, and he has the the keen ability to get what he wants by using tact and the amazing ability of persuasion. Now, any good salesman can sell you a product that you don't even need. And a spectacular salesman would be able to sell you a product that actually is going to cause you harm. Satan is better than both of the two combined, And this is how he makes his pitch. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, if you paid any sort of attention to what God really did say in chapter 2, you would know that this is a far cry from the actual truth of what he said. The serpent begins by twisting the truth to find the vulnerability in his prey. For Eve, he was testing how well she knew the commands of God. And we'll see him use the very same approach whenever he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And I think he uses the same approach with you and I today. He really wants to know how well do we know God's commands. I mean, this is why we always encourage uh, to be diving into the Word of God. That's why we have some of the classes that we have. You know, We have a class every Sunday morning called Cover to Cover where we just go through the Bible Because Satan knows that if you don't know God's commands, it's really easy to twist certain things and to make you believe different things. And this is what's going on here. He begins here with Eve by by opening up a a simple, seemingly harmless theological conversation. But you'll notice that he frames it up by minimizing all that God has done so far. By minimizing His providence and all that He has provided for Adam and Eve And also then by maximizing and exaggerating his prohibition. He also turns God's very firm and clear command to not eat of this one tree into a question to be weighed. To maybe see, well, what do we think about that command? And he begins to plant the seeds of doubt in the very character and the very motivation and authority of God himself. Now, any wise person would recognize that to truly create utter chaos, if you want to see someone completely destroy their lives, start by undermining true authority in their life. If you want people to rebel, begin by undermining true reality and a true sense of right and wrong. In fact, this is the very first approach that we see with the serpent and that we see time and time again with every single sin that is committed by anybody in this world. It's that chaos begins with undermined authority. Even worse than tempting someone to do wrong that know that what they're doing is wrong is the ability to tempt someone to believe that what is wrong is actually right. And the only way to do that is to destroy the foundation of God's authority first and foremost. The only true objective moral authority. Now I hope you can see how this plays out in our world today. As Christians, we hold to the belief that God is our authority. Our determination of what is right and what is wrong is based on his unchanging character. And it's based on his words and his commands that he has so graciously given us. Now, in a book I read recently called Faithfully Different by uh, apologist Natasha Crane, she talks about this idea. She talks about when you begin to reject God's authority as the source of authority in your life, People have to fill that void with something. We are all looking for ways to be righteous. We're all looking for ways to determine what is right and what is wrong. And when you remove God's authority, most people replace it without even knowing it with the next best thing. And she says that that is popular consensus. And uh, so we have to fill it with some sort of uh, a filter. And you see today, you don't have to live very long to see how quickly the, the definitions of right and wrong begin to change in our society But so many people base their decision-making on what is perceived to be accepted by those around them. But the problem with popular consensus, and the problem with anything else that we might fill this void with, with, is that all of these things are not consistent, and they change. But as Christians, we hold to a constant, true, objective source of moral authority, Without something that is solid, without something to put our our foot on a firm foundation, there is no justice that can be had because it's always changing. But here we see the first step in the serpent's plan. If you can undermine the word of the creator, if you can destroy the foundation of God's authority in someone's life, there is no end to the amount of death and destruction from what can happen. And this is how sin always begins. Did God really say By undermining or downplaying God's authority, it eventually starts a chain reaction that leads to utter chaos and destruction. And it's so easy to do when people don't know the commands of God. It's so, so easy. In fact, there's a play on words here in this section that we kind of miss out on because we don't know Hebrew. in, in verse 1, it says that this serpent is crafty. And, and that word crafty sounds a lot like the, very, the word that you see at the very end of chapter 2, the word naked. So at the end of chapter 2, you see Adam and Eve, they're, they're, they're naked. They feel no shame. They're completely vulnerable. And so the author of this, uh, uh, of this book is telling us that, that the serpent is, is so crafty in his craftiness, he plays on our vulnerabilities And here he plays on our vulnerability that when we don't know God well, he sees that as an opportunity to come in and take hold. This is why it matters to us that we are not easy prey for the enemy. There's truth in the Word of God, and when we know it and when we study it, then we're able to know the counterfeit lies that are constantly bombarding us. Chaos begins with undermined authority. And then the chain of events continues. Let's see what happens in verse 2. Here's Eve's response. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, which he didn't say that, by the way, that second part. If you do, you will die. You won't die The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Eve provides her best recollection of what God had said, but the seeds of doubt had begun to be planted. And when authority is undermined, the next thing that happens is clarity is replaced with confusion. Undermined authority replaces clarity with confusion. And it makes sense. When the standard of what is right and what is wrong is undermined and ignored, there is no end to the claims of truth that seek to fill the void. When there's no perceived standard of, uh, to trust in when God's word is undermined, all sorts of ideas and philosophies will jump into the gap. Here Satan downplays the clear consequences that God had told Adam. And he fills the gap by causing Eve to doubt the truth of God with his own lies. You won't die. You see, the only reason that God said that is because He knows then you'll be like Him, and He doesn't want that. I mean, you know what's best for you, Eve. Who knows you better than you know yourself? Trust your gut. You are a goddess, Eve. You live your truth, Eve. And don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. When we abandon the authority of God in our lives, we fall for this kind of twisted thinking that confuses reality. Now, not too long ago, I was giving my youngest, uh, my daughter Phoebe, a bath. She's just three years old. And, and any time that I give him a bath, I always like to turn on music. I love listening to movie soundtracks. And so I was listening to some mu- movie soundtracks. And, and all of a sudden, the Imperial March came on from Star Wars. Now you know you know that one the dun, dun 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 dun. And so she was there, and she looked at me. She said, "This song is scary." I said, "Yeah, it is. It's about a bad guy named Darth Vader," and began to explain the story. I said, "This is from a movie," and then she said that she wanted to watch it. Now, I've tried to get my other two kids to watch Star Wars to no avail, but she just jumped right in. And so after we gave her a bath, we got, you know, sat on the couch. I turned it on, and she just, she was enthralled with it. She loved it. Uh, so over the last couple of weeks, the older two have started to uh, be interested as well. And so we have been watching through uh, the first three movies. So, you know, Star Wars came out with episodes four, five, and six. And then they went back and did these prequels to really explain how the, the biggest, uh, pro, or biggest antagonist, Darth Vader, how he came to be. And so if you know the story, you know, Darth Vader started as this boy, Anakin, and he was a really gifted child. He, he had a use of the force. And uh, as the movies progress, you know, he, he puts himself under submission of the Jedi. And the Jedi are uh, all that is good and right in the world of Star Wars. They're noble. They, they fight for what's right. And so he's, you know, learning from Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi. But in the back of his, in his head, there's this other character, Chancellor Palpatine. And, you know, he goes on to be this evil emperor. And he ever so often just plants these seeds of doubt in the Jedi. And you begin to see how that really transforms Anakin's view of things. And so, you know, for a while, he's kind of confused as to knowing well, who is right and who is wrong. But by the end of those three movies, he is so blinded by the truth that not only does he deny the Jedi, but he seeks to kill them all. And so in this, you see just this example of how just a little bit of undermining of authority starts to lead to confusion, and then it leads to even more disastrous consequences. And it's very similar to what we see in our world today. You don't have to look far to see examples of how God's Word is being undermined and how it leads to confusion. One of the ways that we see this currently is is something that that people have termed as progressive Christianity. Maybe you've heard that term before. And if not, man, I I hope that you read about it because it is something that has infiltrated several churches. This belief that maybe the Word of God was, was authoritative for the time that it was written, but it doesn't really carry the same authority for us today that some of the rules and regulations that were created just reflected the time and place that they were written, and that our job now is to to free those and, and to help adopt them to a more progressive approach of Christianity. And this can be very dangerous because you have qualities like love and truth, grace and justice that we see take shape and are defined in the Word of God, but with a progressive approach the boundaries of what defines these gets changed and is always changing as humanity is progressing and evolving. And this is just one approach that seeks to undermine the authority of God. And you see it in a lot of different areas. I mean, just take marriage, for example, something that was founded here in these chapters, here in chapter 2, that we see this, this uh, design by God between a man and a woman for, for life. But over time, you have those with a more progressive approach that would look and say, no, 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 no. I mean, the spirit of that commitment was to continue, but it really doesn't matter who's involved. It could be any gender or maybe add more than two people. And you can see how as little by little, undermining God's authority, we replace it with what we think is right, and it leads to confusion. And that confusion continues to create this cycle and this chain. When we undermine God's authority, it replaces clarity with confusion, and it leads to the next consequence, destructive decision-making. When our minds are given over to confusion, it then impacts the choices we make. Now, the serpent has made his appeal, and Eve's there. She's listening in. He's taken away the foundation of God's authority. He started to insert his own perverted truth, telling the woman that she wouldn't surely die, that she would be like God. And then we get to verse six. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. She took some fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. In the confusion, Adam and Eve take the consequential step. And in one moment of resolve, sin was birthed into a world quickly spreading from one to another. And that chain would continue on and on and on with every single individual that would be born taking on this very same decision to determine what is right and what is wrong and to take that in their own hands and failing to obey God. Confusion leads to destructive decision-making. Now, as the rest of the story unfolds, Adam and Eve, they they hear God walking in the garden. He calls out to them, and for the very first time, they feel this sense of shame, and so they hide. And God continues to ask questions, you know, where are you, and and what has happened? And, And they eventually confess to everything that has gone on, and it changes everything. The closeness and intimacy that humans had shared with God was lost. And the consequences of sin, its ability to separate us from God, begin to take hold. From verses 14 to 19, God begins to to spell out all the consequences that would come. He turns to the serpent and he tells them, you know, you are going to be beneath all the other creatures of the world. And, And he tells them that the offspring of the serpent, those who follow his ways, those that take control of what is right and wrong in their own hands, would always be battling against those that would truly follow God and seek to call upon him. He tells the woman that, that your life is going to change. I mean, you're going to have pain and childbirth, and this relationship between you and your husband is going to be marked with conflict. And to the man, he tells him, listen, I've provided all of these good fruits, but from here on out, you're going to have to work hard for everything that you get, and you're going to toil and you're going to labor until the very end of your life when both of you will return to the dust of the earth. And this is it. This is humanity's story. After God had brought order and peace through creation, just one decision, one choice caused a chain reaction that threw it all once again into chaos. And generation after generation, mankind would wrestle with this very same premise of trying to determine what is right and what is wrong and whose authority to follow. And I don't know about you, but there are days when I look at the world around me and I just think, man, could it get any worse? where people are so in the dark about what is right and wrong that even the thought of trying to reason with them seems impossible. And as the people of God, sometimes we can feel very helpless to know what to do, and it just seems like we're just sitting on the sidelines watching men and women make decisions that utterly destroy their lives and believe in lies that they believe to be truth. But in the midst of this utter turmoil, A small bud of hope sprouts. You see, even before God finishes, even before he begins to tell Adam and Eve what the consequences are, he turns their attention to this one little detail. In verse 15, in the middle of his charge to the serpent, you know, when he tells them that, that his offspring and the offspring of Eve are going to be battling against one, one another, he says, you know, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. It comes right after this. There's just these 11 words. This small little Easter egg nestled in the midst of incredible sorrow and misery. He says this. He, meaning the future offspring of this woman, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's it. It's such a small detail, but it speaks volumes. With this little detail, sometimes called by this fancy word, the proto-evangelion, the first good news, the first gospel, God reminds Adam and Eve, even before he tells them what's going to happen to them and what they're going to face, that their story is not done. That this serpent and all he represents will be served a fatal blow, while the mark he leaves will be significant but will not be enough to claim victory. And if there is one message that this Easter egg screams at us today, it's that in the midst of facing the daily effects of a broken and fallen world, when the chaos around you feels too great and too overwhelming, God whispers, when all you see is chaos. Look to the cross. When all we see is chaos, God points us to the cross. You see, all it took was one decision to cause everything to unravel. Listen to what Paul says about this moment in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life to everyone. Because one person disobeyed disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person, Jesus, obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Now the chain that started from one decision that infected all of us, that seemed unstoppable, that continued to go on cycle after cycle, generation after generation, all of a sudden one man came along, the only one who could potentially change things. And because he so humbled himself, because he was so obedient to his Father, even to the point of going to the cross, we were able to change direction and to change and reverse this chain. That one decision of going to the cross broke the curse of death to bring life after death. And we begin to see as it takes hold in an individual's life, just as sin has this awful, awful consequences that that continue to cycle through, this one decision to put our hope and faith in Christ changes us and makes us a new creation to where the things and the ways of thinking uh, away from God's authority, we we recognize the truth in our life. Now today I wanted to leave you with, with a picture. There's this picture that my wife has in her office. She loves it, and she one day told somebody that, and uh, actually she preached about it one day, and uh, like five people got her this picture. So she's got several of them. But this is the picture that she has in, in her office. Sometimes you might see it around Christmas time on Facebook if you're searching through. Has anyone seen this one before? You have a picture of two women there, two women that lived centuries apart from one another. There on the left you have Eve. You can tell she's got the fruit in her hand. And her face is sunk, and, and her head is held low in the shame that she feels because of the decisions that she made. And there at her feet you can see the serpent has has entangled her, is wrapped around her legs. But on the right is Mary. And in her womb lies the promise seed that God spoke of in verse 15. And if you look down, her foot is resting, crushing the head. Of that serpent. And this one picture sums up for you and for me the amazing truth of the good news of Jesus. That when our decisions impact our relationship with God and cause unthinkable devastation to those around us and to our lives, God has not given up on us. And the timing of this first good news matters. He wanted Adam and Eve to know that before they even knew the consequences of their actions, that something good was coming. This good news that provided hope to Adam and Eve as they left the garden and entered into this fallen world. And I I wonder if they ever had discussions like, "What, what did God mean when he said that? And it would be a long, long, long while before the truth of what he said would come to fruition. There would be centuries of God continuing to reveal himself to his people, revealing himself through the laws of Moses and through systems like offering sacrifices and and the tabernacle and the temple to help all of us know what is the reality of our sin because we were so blinded, we had so neglected and forgotten the truth that in His grace, He began to show us again that who He was, how holy, how powerful, and how incredibly loving He was and eventually would send His Son. And today, as we head closer to Easter, I want you to know that you are not without hope. That even though we often repeat this cycle through our own destructive decisions, and maybe you're here today and maybe in your own life you're thinking, yeah, I've made some really destructive decisions. Or maybe you're here and you are the product of somebody else's decisions that they have made. But God wants us to know at the very beginning that we are not without hope and so today as we close things out i want to encourage you if you just need someone to pray with or maybe you've got something going on in your life and and just want to talk to somebody about it i'd love to pray with you today or maybe you've never made that decision to fully entrust your life to god's authority that maybe for your life you've thought I I've really just kind of lived by my own terms. I live by my own way. And you're finally at that point to realize this isn't working. But I'm here to tell you that there is a way that does. And it's rooted in a God who loves you more than any other being could possibly love you and in whom all truth exists. We praise me today. Father, we are so, so thankful. For who you are and just seeing these small snippets of truth in the midst of chaos that show us how much you love us. That a life with you is not just about consequences that we face, but it is about teaching us the reality of this world, the reality of how holy you are, how good you are, how we fall short, but how That's not the end of our story. Thank you so much for sending your son to die on the cross so that we could be brought back into a right relationship with you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.